Hello, hello, listeners to the Third Way podcast. Welcome to another Manologue. I've been thinking a lot about feelings. Uh, and when I say feelings, I mean emotions, but also sensations. And I've said this before, but we are, we are trichotomous creatures. We're, we're animals or mammals. We're humans, homo sapiens and we're souls. Uh, And each part of us produces feelings, produces both emotions and sensations. For today, though, I'm thinking about feelings as evolutionary signals for action, let's say. So we have them for a reason. They're meant to spur action. And that's why feelings both emotions and sensations are on a spectrum of pleasant, we want more, to unpleasant, we want less. And so you can look at pleasure or pain as an example, full or hungry. So they are those are normal and necessary, those feelings. They're part of what allows us to adapt and evolve and survive and all that. Um, what makes them, what makes feelings, especially emotions, um, debilitating is actually numbness. This is why Brene Brown says you can, you can't, you have to feel everything because the op- the only other alternative is to feel nothing. Um, but I also think that there are two levels of feelings that we're dealing with, and this is where mindfulness comes in. Um, And when we see feelings in kind of two different levels, we can understand that um, feelings can become, in many ways, like a tyrant or an inner authoritarian that has way too much influence and control over aspects of our lives. So you can look at feelings as core feelings. There's a lot of debate around what those are. You know, some people say there's some people say there's seven of them. Some people say there's way more than that. But these are the ones that I like to think of as that all mammals have. So uh, fear, lust, um, uh, anger, you know, things like that. Those are core feelings, and they really are produced from the nervous system. What makes us different? as I mentioned, being trichotomous, is that our mind, the neocortex, also produces feelings, what I call secondary feelings. Um, so for example, um, depression is often considered a secondary feeling of anger. And this is where you get into like existential crises or existential angst. And it's really this uh, we're it's an, it's a funny thing about us humans almost like a practical joke is joke is we have these core feelings that produce a story and then we have a story then we have feelings about the story that and we add representation and meaning and association to them that's why i've said recently that association is hell and expectations are its chains that all comes from that existential uh type of feelings so this is the role of mindfulness. And I don't do a lot of how-to stuff on the third way, but this is a little bit of a how-to, I suppose. Because mindfulness 
helps us unidentify or detach our identity from feelings so that we can label them. Um, this allows us to put to be in an observation role where we can apply critical mind and curiosity. And that's kind of the first step. So if you're going to practice mindfulness about your feelings, just being able to identify them is a huge step that most people never do. Partially because in at least American culture, we're discouraged, especially men of my generation and older, we're discouraged from doing that. Um, the second thing that can happen or that can, happens with mindfulness is it helps discern the source of the feeling or sensation. Because when we're sitting in the witness seat, we can look and say, okay, my body is producing this, which, could, which includes the nervous system. And this is why sometimes how, why we feel different after taking a nap or a shower or making love or something along those lines, that, there's a, that our body needed something and, or, and, and that was producing, as I said, an evolutionary signal for action. Um, and again, that's, that's normal. We still want to have with mindfulness and awareness of sort of impulse or, um, you know, self-indulgence and things like that. But then you have sort of ego-based feelings. Um, feeling offended is a great example of an ego-based feeling. And the thing about an ego-based feeling when you apply mindfulness to it is it really just dissipates because it's not real. It's not a real feeling. Um, I mean, it feels real, but it's a it's a shadow from a story that our mind is telling about a deeper feeling. Um, and so um, feeling offended is like a secondary feeling for maybe the feeling of a lack of self-worth or shame. And then you have soul feelings. Soul feelings are the hardest to discern. Um, but they're because they're sometimes the quietest and they kind of sit in the background. And this is the role of stillness and solitude and silence is to sit and listen to what your soul is feeling. Sometimes the soul communicates through the body. I've never heard of the soul communicating through the mind in the, in the, or the ego. Maybe it does, but I've never experienced that. And soul feelings still are on a spectrum. A soul feeling could be longing or passion, or um, compassion. Those are more soul feelings. And in many ways, soul feelings are kind of virtue-based as opposed to values-based. And virtue meaning that it's the intention of the soul being brought into action in the material world. Um, so in summary of that, bod the body feelings are about survival, um, or, you know, advancing the human species, the ego feelings is, are all existential and signals of something in addition to that, you know, the secondary feeling. And soul feelings are about the action they're prompting is to return home to our core self. Um, all three are, are different, but all three are intended to spark action. So we often associate feelings with behaviors. I feel this way, so I behave this way. Um, I think that's especially true if you come from a position of power or you have resources. Like, you know, you, you, 
you are not disempowered, so therefore you can act on your feelings. Um, if we separate that out using mindfulness and say, I feel this way, but I'm behaving this way, we start to see something else that's interesting. And what is that we are able to, with mindfulness, examine the benefit we are gaining from behaviors that are unhealthy for us, that, yeah, that are unhealthy for us. And we can look at why, we, why are we doing this? What benefit am I getting from this? Um, this behavior, because it's especially a, a behavior that's sparked by a feeling. Um, and all of this kind of brings back, brings us back to one of the primary things that separates us from other creatures, and that is choice. And we really can't choose our feelings, especially our primary feelings that are part of being a mammal. We can't really choose those feelings. But we can always choose our behavior associated with those feelings. So I want to break this down with kind of two feelings I, I have, like that are, uh, I would say, unpleasant, on the unpleasant spectrum. Because, you know, we'll do a lot of things to avoid pain. And using this methodology, this sort of mindfulness methodology, one of them is worry. So... I have done, I've worried, I've been a worrier my whole life. It's part of being an empath. I think it's part of, you know, a, a traumatic childhood. It's part of just being a human, but I worry. Um, but what I've noticed with mindfulness in recent days is that I worry far less about what might be. And I worry more about what is. Um, and it's not the same as being present and being worry-free and zenned out. It's not, I'm not saying that, but there's a big difference for me at least of understanding that worry is coming from, that worry that's coming about for around, from things that are happening around me is a way more normal, for lack of a better term, place to be than existential worry. You know, so you worry about, you know, we, we have a, a business and, we, you know, we're trying to grow the business and it's our primary source of revenue and we have places we want to go and things we want to do. So I worry about that. I worry about, um, you know, the health of the people I love. I worry about world events. Um, to, and, and there's this kind of bastardization of stoicism that you should only worry about that which you have control over. And I, I just don't think that that is a reasonable thing to expect of people because that could easily be seen as dis like completely disconnecting from participating in society. Um, and so as I examine, you know, what, what I'm worried about, what I'm noticing is it is sparking a lot of particular positive behaviors. Um, I'm more disciplined with my time related to working on the business, or I'm more structured in how we, we are more structured in how we collaborate. Um, we would often say, you know, it's, I, I'm taking some, taking it seriously. And that's take, taking something seriously is not a feeling. It's the behavior associated with it. And that's a good thing. So, 
mindfulness has taught me I'm really not trying to eliminate worry entirely. I'm trying to just understand it, where it comes from. And what I'm looking for is, am I, is worry producing unhelpful or unhealthy actions? Yeah, sometimes. The other night, you know, I was kind of worried and I went and had a you know bowl of cereal at 11 o'clock at night. Pretty mild, but not necessarily a healthy thing to do. The other feeling, though, is an existential one born of trauma. And it's something I've been working on with my, I've, I, I've uh, started a relationship or an engagement with a psychiatrist, somewhat to help with brain chemistry, but also just a different take on my relationship with my mind. And one of the things that he's helping me with is uh, paranoia. So this is the correlation between worry and paranoia. Worry is a normal human thing. Uh, animals, mammals worry in their own way. Um, but paranoia is taking worry and, and applying it to the worst case scenario that you can have and then um, trying to eliminate the story and the extra feelings from it. And it's a waste of fucking time. That's what I've realized. There's a general rule in mindfulness and, well, not just in mindfulness, but in life, that you can't, it's almost impossible to disprove a negative. And, and especially when it's existential, like paranoia. And um, so this is one of those where I had this focus of, of more of the why than the what. Like, why am I paranoid? Oh, it's because I, I've had my heart broken or people that were supposed to love me hurt me or, what, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of reasons. And that's probably true, but it, that doesn't determine my behavior. I determine my behavior. So I've been focusing much more as it relates to paranoia and other really dark feelings that I don't particularly like having on the what, meaning what is the behavior that it's creating? And often, and this is the this is the interesting thing to me, just kind of doing my own you know mind hacking here. What paranoia really actually is, and the reason that I benefit from it, um, is that it produces dopamine. And as someone with ADHD, someone that I've eliminated many of my old sort of dopamine production methodologies like drama and conflict and picking fights and doing risky shit, you know, not, or, you know, being, being impulsive. I've eliminated all of that. My brain still needs more dopamine and paranoia because again, all feelings are designed or messages to, to spark action is it puts me in dopamine seeking mode. And that's the, um, to quote a, a great book about this, that's the existential kink is that the reason that I feel paranoid, that I, that I allow a feeling of paranoia to turn into behavior, I should say, is because I get benefit from it, and the benefit is dopamine. So now I'm at a place where if I'm feeling paranoid about something, I, I don't really have to even examine it all that much. I just, have to be, I just have to say, oh, I'm feeling paranoid. What will I do? Not why do I feel this way? And um, something my psychiatrist pointed out too is we will always have our triggers. We may reduce their intensity or their longevity, 
but we will always have our triggers. What my brain has done is it's taking taken the trauma and turned it into a dopamine-seeking device, which is pretty brilliant from an evolutionary standpoint. It's a pain in the ass, but it's pretty brilliant as far as brains go. So that is an overview for me of how I'm using mindfulness to explore feelings. And what I've noticed in recent days is I'm feeling things more deeply and thoroughly. I'm feeling things that are, I'm feeling, for example, I'm feeling calm despite worries about growing the business or, you know, just dynamics. I feel calm. Um, I, also, um, through mindfulness, I've been able to um, feel a feeling all the way through, um, which sometimes is extremely short. Um, so I'm a lot less sensitive. I read, I, I, I notice that with this exercise, I spend a lot less time sort of reading what other people or facial expressions and tone and you know i have occasional flare-ups of that but way less than i was and that's kind of its own kind of liberation and i think that's the point that we have been given as humans the gift is a spiritual gift of mindfulness so we can be liberated from the um from you know animal impulses but even more damaging from the ego so we don't even have to kill our ego we can just understand it and understand that it's producing feelings that drive behavior. Um, but we can liberate ourselves from that. And that is all for today. Thank you for listening.